and welcome to the Westside Church's special Monday Morning Coffee Podcast. On this podcast, our preacher, Mark Roberts, will help you get your week started right with a look back at yesterday's sermon so that we can think through it further and better work the applications into our daily lives. Mark will then look forward into this week's Bible reading so that we can know what to expect and watch for. And he may have some extra bonus thoughts from time to time. So grab a cup of coffee as we start the week together on Monday Morning Coffee with Mark. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the Monday Morning Coffee podcast for Monday, November the 8th. I'm Mark, and I hope you're ready to think about yesterday's sermon. That was a little different, wasn't it? And prepare for this week in daily Bible reading in Matthew's wonderful, wonderful gospel. We want to start the week right with a sharp spiritual focus. Pour that cup of coffee. I'm working on a cappuccino right here. Let's do it. Let's go to work. So yesterday, I preached a sermon titled, The Parable of the Life Browser. And I'm going to give you a little behind-the-scenes look at sermon preparation and some of my thoughts about that and how all that came together. I have really been impressed with Jesus' ability to make people think and to galvanize his ideas in the minds of his hearers with the use of parables as we've been reading in the Gospels all year long. I've thought a lot about the tactics and techniques that Jesus uses as the master teacher, and I'm just very impressed with Jesus' ability to tell stories that make you think and that you are still thinking about, maybe even hours later, as those truths echo around in your heart. And I I want to do something like that. I have a couple of sermons where I've done a parable or a story kind of thing. And this was actually, what I did yesterday was actually based on something I did more than 20 years ago that involved an index card file. And I really didn't think anybody today that was under the age of 40 probably even knew what it's like to go to the library and look at the card catalog. So I needed to do some updating of that. I needed to think through that again in a different way. And as I began to think about what would it be like if your life was recorded on internet pages, on web pages, and you were in a browser and you were looking at those pages, scrolling those pages, reading those pages, clicking a new tab and seeing more pages, I realized, I think I can make this into a story. I think I can make this work. And so that's what I tried to do yesterday. That's a risky kind of thing. I'm not used to that kind of preaching. And of course, as an audience, we're not exactly used to listening to that kind of preaching either. But I really would like to do more of that. I think I'd like to get to a place where I can do a parable three, four times a year, and it not be quite so out of the ordinary. Maybe people even look forward to that. I hope if you're listening to this and you think of something that could be adapted in that way, or maybe you read something and you and someone is using this as a parable to illustrate some ideas from the Bible, maybe you'll point me to that or send that to me so that I can think through that. I need more material, but more than anything, I just need to be thinking more parably. I'm not even sure that that is a word, but it should be. And I need to be seeing if I can 
preach and teach like Jesus. So much of my preaching is very doctrinal and very, very much based in here's a proposition, and now here's three points about that proposition, and here's what the Bible says about that proposition, and this is what we're going to do about that proposition. And and without any question, I think that's very effective. I think that can be very effective. There's plenty of that kind of preaching in the Bible, and Jesus does that kind of preaching, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, even if it's not three points uh, illustrated with PowerPoint and then an invitation song, Jesus can preach that way. But some of Jesus' best teaching is in parable form, and that's why yesterday I told the Parable of the Life Browser. If you've not heard that sermon, you probably need to just go listen to that sermon to have any idea about anything that I'm going to say next. But it is based on the idea of a young man who sees a unique and special computer. It's in a dream, and as he looks at the computer, it has a browser, and he begins to browse the pages, and he realizes that these pages are the pages of his life. And the major points that I tried to make yesterday out of that is that every page in your browser, in your life, is going to matter. Everything in the parable is written down. Everything that he's ever done or thought. And the idea there is to help people think through or connect to the idea that all my actions, no matter how big or how small, all of them matter. Our lives really aren't made made up of giant events much of what we do is smaller, but the Lord sees it all. It Lord sees it all. And that was the second point. You can't hide a single page from God. There's no way to delete your history. There's no way to clear your browser. God knows everything that we have done. God knows everything that we have thought. All of it is open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do, the Hebrew writer tells us. And so in the parable then, Jesus enters the room and begins to look at the pages of this man's life. And of course, he's mortified because there's so many pages there that represent sin and that tell of wrong deeds and things that he should not have done. And in an amazing moment then, Jesus touches the browser and the black pages of sin are turned in a flash to white. Jesus cleanses his life is the metaphor there. And Jesus is the only one that can do that. So then the final point that I made is that we're all writing pages. That's what we're doing with our life. We're all writing pages now. And we need to think seriously about what those pages look like and what kind of pages we are writing and whether we've let Jesus come and cleanse those pages. Are we letting Jesus deal with our sins? I hope that sermon worked for you and was something that enabled you to think of some spiritual truths maybe in a new way, or particularly I'm always looking for something that's what I would call sticky. Everyone's heard a sermon that had an illustration or the way a point was phrased or maybe the PowerPoint slides were just very memorable. They stick with us. And as a preacher, I'm going to get the opportunity to speak over 100 times in a year. I want as many of those sermons as possible to remain with you. I want them to stick, and I hope maybe this one will be sticky in that kind of fashion. I don't really have a whole lot of things that I'd want to add to that sermon, I don't think. I think the parable was pretty complete. I did really toy with the idea of somehow networking the browser to other people's browsers because the flaw, or one of the flaws at least in my story, is that the man is all by himself. And we aren't all by ourselves. Now, obviously, I get it. We're going to be judged 
on what we do, and there'll be no group judging, hey, you're standing in a group of really fine people. You weren't really much of a disciple, but hey, you get admitted with everybody else. Of course, that's not how salvation works, and we all know that. But being part of a group of Christians can help you be a better disciple, and I need to think of some way to illustrate that maybe add that on. Uh, you know, Jesus' parables don't cover everything. Jesus' parables don't answer every question that we might ask. Jesus uses some scoundrels in his parables sometimes, and that causes people a little bit of, of trepidation. Uh, so it's probably okay that I didn't hang a bunch of other stuff off the parable and in some way bog it down so that it was theologically answering every possible conception of discipleship. But there is something to be said for the fact that that my browser pages connect to your browser pages. And you can help me, and I can help you, and together we can serve the Lord in a better way. Maybe I'll develop that further down the line, some kind of parable of the networked computers or something like that. But I hope that sermon, like I said, will be sticky with you. And if you have other ideas for parable sermons, or if you want to reflect with me a little bit more on how that worked and whether or not that worked, I would be interested in what you have to say about that. Send me a comment on Facebook or an email, or just grab me after church and say, hey, I, I had something I wanted to mention to you about that sermon. I really like this, or I didn't like that at all. That didn't work for me, or something. Uh, let me know what you're thinking about that, because I am trying to explore more the idea of teaching and preaching like Jesus by telling stories that catch and hold our attention. This week in Daily Bible Reading, we will read two complete chapters in Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 18. We have nice, clear, bright lines, nice, clean, sharp edges this week. That begins Monday in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 13, Matthew's account of the transfiguration of Jesus the Christ. And when you read this, you will have a lot of questions. For example, why didn't all the apostles get to go? Or since it is Peter, James, and John, hey, how about the foursome? The four musketeers are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Where is Andrew? And we can ask a lot of those questions and speculate a lot about all of that. And what that will do is keep us from seeing what Matthew wants us to see, which is Jesus is the Messiah, but his Messiahship is blended with his suffering. His glory and his suffering go together. And Matthew is doing that out of verse 1 right away. He says, after six days. Matthew very rarely gives us time indicators. He's tying this to the material in chapter 16, where Peter 16.16 says, you are the Messiah. And immediately 16.21, Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah. And that means I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. I will suffer and die and I will be risen on the third day. That, of course, is way outside the box for these disciples. They need a lot of thinking about that. They need to really home in on those kinds of ideas, and the transfiguration is going to help at least Peter, James, and John do some of that as Jesus appears, verse 3, and talks with Moses and Elijah. Now, Matthew is the one that makes the most of Jesus' face shining. And that, of course, identifies Jesus with Moses. Moses' face shone after he would visit with God, talk with God. He had to veil his face. His face was so bright after that. And both of these fellows, Moses and Elijah, 
really stand out, both as the summation of the law and the prophets. That's how the Jews would reference the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. We don't think that much of Elijah sometimes because Elijah didn't write. We think maybe of Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the minor prophets. But in Jewish thought, Elijah is super important on par with Moses. Moses is the model prophet, Deuteronomy 18, uh, but both of these men had strange ends. God buries Moses, no one knows where. Elijah went directly to heaven. Both men received God's word on a mountain. And then, of course, Jesus preached from a mountain in Matthew chapter 5. So there's just a lot of parallels working here, lots of Old Testament connection. The cloud settles upon them. Verse 5, Matthew makes much of it being a bright cloud. And of course, in the Old Testament, a cloud is associated with God. The people of Israel are led by a cloud. And there's lots of language in the prophets about the cloud being a, a harbinger of judgment. God rides on the clouds, Isaiah 19, bringing judgment. Plenty of passages that talk about that. That Ezekiel 30, Zephaniah 1, Psalm 97. Then and the cloud here then says basically what was said at the baptism of Jesus, which is focus on Jesus. I don't think that Peter, James, and John took all of that in at that moment. I don't think they are getting all of that. Peter will say in 2 Peter 1:16 that he understood this better later. But Jesus does say, as they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, don't talk about it. You know, people don't understand Jesus' messiahship now. If these guys go and tell everybody, hey, Jesus was talking to the two biggest characters in Judaism, Moses and Elijah, folks are going to completely lose it, and there's no telling what would happen. We're just going to have to keep this under wraps for a while. So Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain, and our reading then concludes with the discussion of how the disciples understood that some of this has to do with John the Baptist, that Elijah has come already, verses 11 and 12, and that's a small step. It's a small step, but it is a step that says they're finally beginning to put some things together. On Tuesday, we read in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 27. What dominates this account, of course, is the healing of this boy who has a demon. They come back down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's this boy who has a terrible demon possession. Some have tried to make this into epilepsy, but it is most certainly not. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon. And the other apostles, they can't do anything with this. While Jesus was away, utter and complete failure. And in fact, failure becomes a recurring theme. Just keep your eye on the idea of the disciples not understanding, not figuring it out. We saw that in chapter 14, verse 16, chapter 14, 26, 15, 16, 16, 5. Going to see that here in Matthew's gospel. The disciples don't always latch on to everything that the kingdom of heaven and that Jesus is saying about the kingdom and being the king. They don't always get that in the first pass. Uh, maybe we ought to remember here, Matthew's part of that group that failed. Matthew is part of the guys at the bottom of the mountain who can't do this. Jesus says you failed, verse 20, because of your little faith. If you had more faith, you could move mountains around. Of course, that's been terribly misunderstood. It is about 
genuine faith. It's, it is saying something about the quality of your faith, not the quantity of your faith. You don't need an 18-wheeler's load of faith to do great things in the kingdom of God. But this idea of moving mountains causes people all kinds of difficulties. And of course, what they're not dealing with is that that's just a proverbial statement for overcoming tremendous difficulties. It's used that way a couple of places in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 40. It's kind of like the expression, I could eat a horse. Nobody expects when they say, man, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, that someone is going to cook up some horse. That's not where we're going with that. And Jesus isn't saying you could literally pick up Mount Everest and chunk it in the sea. Why would you do that? And how would that relate to faith in any kind of way? But they do need more faith. They need to have more belief in Jesus and more belief in the powers that he has bestowed upon them. Our reading then concludes, verse 24 to 27, with a story that's only in Matthew, and that's the story of the temple tax. The temple tax was a tax that all Jews paid, all Jewish males paid, aged 20 to 50, and in Jesus' day, it was two drachmas or a half a shekel, and all good Jews would pay that tax. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is a law-abiding Jew. I should mention here that this story gets attacked a lot. And lots of modernistic scholars and commentators will say something about that Jesus was only kidding or that this is just some kind of legend. One of my favorite scholars noted, to declare that a historical narrative is folklore has far-reaching implications for the reliability of the text. That is exactly right. If we start writing stuff off in Scripture as just being myth and legend, the question always comes, Where do you stop writing myth and legend, and how do you know? This is a true account of what Jesus does in order to be a law-abiding Jew, and Matthew records it because this gospel is for Jewish people. On Wednesday, then, we begin Matthew chapter 18. The first nine verses is our reading for Wednesday. And I said that a theme here is going to be the failure of the disciples. And here is a failure. Verse 1, they're asking about who is the greatest. Mark's account tells us they were actually arguing about who the greatest is in the kingdom. I wonder if Peter, James, and John were saying, we saw something that you didn't see, and we can't tell you about it. I know something you don't know. Is that feeding into some kind of discussion about who's great in the kingdom? Jesus says, the way to be great is to be humble. In verse 3, Jesus says, truly I say unto you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Kids get used out of that verse as models of everything from purity to innocence. All kinds of things go on there. If you've ever had a little kid, you know They're not always model citizens. Probably won't go into all that right here, but uh, all the parents are amening as I say that. Probably what Jesus is going for here is that kids aren't concerned about their social status. Kids don't concern themselves with who's greatest. They're not into that. They don't worry about that. They'll play with anybody. They're not clash conscious. They don't care if you went to the right school or you have the right kind of clothes. And I think Jesus is calling to humility like that. And really, to some extent, much of the rest of the chapter is developed from situations that will arise in the church where people don't practice that kind of humility, the temptation to 
cause other people to sin, verses 7, 8, and 9. And then there'll be discussion of how to bring back a brother who strays, verses 10 to 14, and even reprove somebody who is in error, verses 15 to 20. And then reconciliation and forgiveness are covered in verse 21 on through the end of the chapter there as Jesus talks about the importance of forgiving each other and caring for each other in that kind of way. So a lot of what happens here in these first six verses begins to drive what's going to go on in the rest of our Bible reading here in Matthew chapter 18. Thursday's reading begins in verse 10, in which Jesus says, Don't despise kids, because I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This is the verse that has been used to say that children have guardian angels appearing before the Lord. And I'm not very comfortable with that. That is not what the verse says. The verse does not say that you have a specific angel assigned to you who is your guardian angel. There's nothing else in Scripture that would suggest there is one angel for each person. Having said that, I feel like sometimes we just minimize angels. There's so so much mistaken angelology in our world today, and Paul certainly warns the Colossian brethren about becoming overly fascinated with angels, and the Hebrew writer certainly tells us Jesus is greater than angels, so we want to keep our focus on the main thing. But sometimes the result of all of this is we just don't talk about angels at all. That's a mistake. Jesus is saying something. Angels are in the presence of God. That's what seeing God's face means. And clearly, they're doing that in some kind of function, in some kind of way to help and assist us. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels serve you and me in order to help us be saved. We should take great comfort in that rather than just trying to push this out of Scripture because it makes us uncomfortable. We should be thrilled that angels care about us and that God cares about us so much that these mighty beings are dispatched to help and assist us. Even if we don't know everything about how they do that, when they do that, what that looks like, we should still just be excited. That's how much God cares for us. Now, the rest of that chapter talks about Verse 10, a fellow who's lost and who needs to be restored. And Jesus tells a shepherd parable there, a little bit of a lost sheep thing. Reminds us of Luke 15. It is not exactly the same as Luke 15. And then we get the offended brother discussion in verses 15 to 20 to finish our reading on Thursday. And this procedure sets forth clearly the idea that we want to restore. We don't just cut people off. We don't just get angry and leave or push them out. We want people to be restored. The church will need to know how to heal itself when things go amiss. And Jesus is giving very much the kind of thing that we need to do and to be a part of if we're going to remain the family of God. This is rooted in the Old Testament. comes out of Deuteronomy 19.15. And this is another place where Jesus' community is going to be like Israel of old. The new Israel in some ways echoes the Israel of old. And maybe I would say this from verse 20. I love this podcast because I get to say a little bit more about Bible reading than I'm going to get to say on Friday when I read that or on Wednesday night when we talk about the Bible reading. Look at verse 20 where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. People cite that all the time in a variety of contexts many times. 
terribly misused. You know, I've got a foursome playing golf on Sunday, but hey, wherever two or three are gathered, Jesus is there so we can skip church and and play golf. Oh my, that is certainly not what Jesus means, and that is certainly not uh, what what the New Testament would be teaching about our role in worship and our obligation to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Please notice verse 20 is in the context of church discipline. That's what that's talking about. God will answer the prayer of the church that wants to do his will and will be with those who are judging sin and working to purify the Lord's church. That's what verse 20 means in that context. Friday's reading then concludes chapter 18. Friday, we'll read Matthew 18, 21 to 35. And this is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Notice a couple of things here. Verse 22, Jesus said, I don't say to you, the question is about forgiveness. How many times should I forgive? Not seven times, but 77 times. That's an Old Testament connection. Genesis 4, 24, Lamech vows 70 times seven vengeance. Jesus now overturns that and reverses that out. He then tells a story where a man owns owes a gazillion dollars, and he does. This is more money than anybody could possibly pay in their lifetime. Some suggest this would be, in our dollars today, over a billion dollars. Imagine if you had got to messing in Bitcoin or the stock market or playing the horses, and somehow you ran up a bill of over a billion dollars. There's just no way an individual can pay that. There's not a chance. In the New Testament world, you could be sold, verse 25, although that's not going to pay much on the debt. A slave would be sold for somewhere around one talent. Considering how much he owes here, that's not really going to put a big dent in the bill. Then he goes out after having been forgiven, and he grabs a guy who owes him 100 denarii. Now, a denarii is one day's wage for the working man. So this guy owes him about three months' wages. Now, That's not an inconsequential sum. It's not a nickel, but it's also not nearly what he owed and has just been forgiven. There's no way 10,000 talents, verse 24, can possibly compare to 100 denarii in verse 28. And this man, verse 29, makes the exact same plea that he made. I will pay you. Instead, he is hard-hearted, and treats this man roughly and unfairly, unmercifully. And so he is turned over, verse 34, to the torturers. The ESV has jailers with a marginal note there. Torturers figure here because torturers do what? They make you reveal hidden sources of money. People buried their money back then, and they would say, I can't pay, but a torturer would make you tell the truth. That's in the context of the New Testament culture. That's why Jesus says that. So my heavenly Father, verse 35, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What a powerful story about the need for forgiveness and that we forgive because we realize we have been forgiven, and we have been forgiven so very much. Wow, Matthew 17 and 18, those are tremendous chapters really pushing us to think a lot about what it is to be in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you for listening to the Monday Morning Coffee Podcast. 
We'd love for you to subscribe, follow, rate, or give a review on iTunes or whatever app you are listening on. The best thing you could do is simply tell someone else about the show. Daily Bible reading can be very evangelistic. People want to know more about the Bible. Share this show with someone and urge them to read the Bible along with you. Give them a Bible reading schedule. Tell them to listen in and they can read God's Word and spend time with Jesus Christ. So until next time, may your coffee be delightful, may your Monday be short, and may the Lord be with you today, all day. See you next week. Thanks for listening to the Westside Church of Christ podcast, Monday Morning Coffee with Mark. For more information about Westside, you can connect with us through our website, justchristians.com, and our Facebook page. Our music is from Upbeat.io. That's Upbeat with two P's, U-P-P-B-E-A-T, where creators can get free music. Please share our podcast with others. And we look forward to seeing you again, with a cup of coffee, of course, on next Monday. 